Welcome to Audio Gyan with Kedar Nimkar, a podcast that documents insightful conversations with Indian designers, artists, musicians, writers, thinkers, and creatives of all types. Here's your host, Kedar Nimkar. Today, I have a writer, traveler, and photographer, Shivaji Das, with us on Audio Gyan. He has authored few books like Off the Beaten Track, Collecting Stories of Unheard Lives. journeys with the caterpillar traveling through the islands of flores and sumba indonesia and most recently the other shangrela shivaji's writing and work with migrants have been published in journals such as time the economist bbc and more he was born and brought up in the northeastern province of assam and now stays in singapore today we are here to discuss about travel writing is it Uh, a practice or uh, can it be a profession and more about his book and the travel journey experiences so let's find out uh, thanks uh, shivaji for giving your time and it's a real real pleasure to have you on audio again thanks kedar happy to be here so i'm just going to have a small um, joke here that this is like one conversation where i'm going to address uh, shivaji as shivaji and not really the shivaji maharaj the chatrapati shivaji maharaj which is So it's it's uh it's going to be slightly different for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no pressure on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, the entire premise uh, which I wanted to cover was about travel writing. Uh, and uh, writing being an art form. Uh, is there are there any specifics about travel? Uh, and uh, also more about travel as an art form. So how do you document? How do you uh cover these stories? How do you curate within the experiences which you have? you had while traveling and uh, things like that so uh, to begin with uh, i would start by asking what is different about travel writing i mean the way in in general writing you have these articles or opinions or factual documentation even in journalism you have these sort of different forms right so are there any subsections uh, in travel writing uh, and uh, any any like uh, we can start there and then open up more questions as we go along sure sure so yeah i mean there are uh, different subsections within travel writing and uh, because of the advent of internet and uh, new media uh, there have been many more appendages or new subsections attached to this whole idea of travel writing now one of the things uh, which makes travel writing slightly different from other forms of writing or non fiction in general is that uh, it's uh, in it involves uh, traveling in the first place and so many other writing even non fiction you could probably just do sitting in your armchair uh, but travel writing is where traveling comes perhaps first and the way you travel uh, where you go how you travel what you see what you hear it influences and matters a lot the writing that you produce of course like any other form of writing who you are also influences a lot uh, the genre of travel writing so uh, you know in the in the till i think the 1940s till the second world war travel writing was perhaps the most important or most uh, look forward to genre of writing and since then things have changed but uh, till the 1940s travel writing had a lot of intersection with anthropological writing historical writing economics uh, sociology and so on and travelers were looked upon to provide information on all these dimensions uh, to anywhere they went to 
but uh, since 1945, uh, since the Second World War was over, I would say that uh, many of these fields like anthropology, sociology got highly specialized and travel writers lost that respect uh, which they used to get. As of today, the big difference is, first of all, that you need to travel before you can actually write. Uh, in nonfiction, for instance, if you're doing business writing, you could probably just do some research, sitting where you are interviewing people. Now, I would also say that uh, many critics have uh, argued that travel writing is not pure nonfiction. I mean, often travel writing is put in the broader umbrella of nonfiction, but uh, many critics have also said that unlike in nonfiction, where you have to stick to the facts 100% of uh, the time, in travel writing, you make many conscious decisions to omit uh, several aspects. For example, let's say you took a bus, which seat you sat in, uh, which, uh, did, what places went by as you look through your window, all these could be omitted by the travel writer if it doesn't really add. So in, in that sense, you are not sticking 100% to the facts as it happens. So there are some arguments that uh, it's not pure nonfiction and it's it's somewhere between fiction and nonfiction. But having said that, even today, uh, there's a lot of intersection between travel writing, journalism, memoir writing. Um, and uh, what we see that uh, some new subsections have evolved. For instance, there are very niche travel writing uh, in the sense that there is a book by Adam Minter talking about junkyard planet, in which he follows the journey of garbage or trash as it goes from one country to another. And his travel writing is centered around that. So that can be very such niche elements. Uh, there's another subsection of travel writing, which is about retracing. So you retrace some famous journeys which may have happened in the past. For instance, you know, even some came all the way to India from China. So there could be another travel writer who tries to replicate the same journey. There are also coming of age, like transformational kind of travel writing in which say a teenager goes to Canada. There's this writer called Sipra Matram, a Canadian writer. She has been traveling around the world while she was reaching her puberty. So it's kind of you age as and when you travel. So coming of age, life transformation kind of stories. There are also like pilgrimage based travel writing, spiritual travel writing, which is there. But I would also say that uh, there are some fiction-based uh, travel writing as well, in which you loosely create characters and plot lines centered around actual travel. So books like that have also come in. And uh, with the advent of internet and uh, new media, there are many new subsections which have been added. So whether it's uh, blogs, whether it's uh, journals, whether it's YouTube uh, channels, whether it's Instagram, all these could also be considered some form of travel content or travel writing all the way to a trip advisor review so in in a sense in a summary yeah travel writing is somewhat different from other forms because here traveling is very much the core and how you travel uh, is very much the core part of the whole experience and the output and then there are these new sections which have evolved especially after the advent of internet Fascinating, fascinating to know uh, so many subsections within it. And uh, so you mentioned about spiritual uh, travel as well, and I'm particularly interested in that aspect as well. Um, but I've I've heard this phrase called as ego travel. Um, mm -hmm. But from my understanding, uh, which uh, I've been trying to do is that when you 
say like you you go and settle down in or you just go and travel in some part of interior india or or nepal or any any city and uh, you just mm-hmm. from that moment the moment you land there you just think that you are born and brought up here so you don't really compare mm-hmm. compare the uh, stuff with where you used to stay which typically happens when people travel right so i can give you a very like silly mm-hmm. example but it's it's a very profound one that a lot of people are obsessed with the mumbai pani puri and if they go to calcutta or some other yes. place uh, they they just think that this is not happening while uh, those mm-hmm. people might think that in the mumbai one might not be happening right so this is where i i mm-hmm. sort of i don't know whether it's a real word also you go travel but it it's uh, something mm-hmm. you got the drift right where what i'm talking about yeah so if yeah. you can share what what yeah. does it mean to you and um, also in one of your articles you mentioned that uh, you know when to be honest about the various fears and phobias you are attempting to overcome when you are in a foreign territory or maybe like a dangerous area or something like that so uh, any examples uh, to explain this and what is your definition or understanding about uh, ego travel in general sure i think the way i i would understand ego travel is uh, more about uh, using travel as a way to show off yeah i think that's how uh, many uh, especially in the western markets they would consider ego travel as so you know the whole purpose of traveling is kind of to be able to post instagram photos or youtube videos and all that uh, social media posts and so on so that that is kind of my understanding it's kind of giving you an ego boost and as a show off that uh, you have been there done that you have completed the bucket lists and so on and uh, with that definition i mean nothing wrong with that i mean um, all said and done and many things that we do is uh, centered around that whether you buy a motorcycle or whether you watch a movie there's some element of ego attached with uh, many activities that we do and Uh, one of the benefits of travel uh, which if uh, even if it's done in a very haphazard or uh, very uh, siloed way is that it will expose you in very insignificant amount even if uh, that happens to different culture to different people to different ways of living and that creates some uh, level of uh, openness and if not openness some level of questioning of your biases and uh, you know even if it's eco travel if that small impact happens i don't see anything wrong with that did, did i did i get uh, that part right yeah no no actually i was talking about the other part in fact this is also quite a interesting uh, perspective i was uh, taking more mm-hmm. on the lines of you killing your ego because you are when you are traveling you are actually stepping out of your bubble stepping out of your comfort zone and then sure. knowing okay. that you are such a tiny uh, like drop of water in the ocean kind of a thing and that's where you kill your ego while traveling and i wanted to understand that aspect more yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay all right well that uh, that happens but rarely happens you know i i've heard i've met and heard so many travelers they are often complaining that uh, things are not working out uh, the air conditioning is not working the hotel has bed bugs so there's a lot of complaining that you hear from other fellow travelers because uh, what especially when they're traveling to uh, less developed countries than what they are used to living in that uh, they find it very hard that uh, many of the comforts and many of the uh, privileges that they are used to may not uh, be extended to them when that happens 
but yeah, there is a small segment of people who do that. Uh, they try to, uh, you know, they, I would say it happens rather than it something that can they can force upon themselves. In many cases, it happens by itself. Like you find uh, sometimes in a natural setting, you find that you are, uh, say, tenting in an open area and with millions and billions of stars. Uh, you know, you get that sense of uh, being very small and insignificant. Similarly, if you are in a crowded street of Calcutta or in Churchgate Station, for instance, you see these millions of people and you and you get that sense of uh, being very small and insignificant. So I think uh, in that sense, uh, the more you do immersive travel, that that feeling sometimes does come in that, you know, you are, you are a small part of it. But at the same time, uh, at least in my case and uh, many other travelers' case, there are aspects of your personality and aspects of your culture deep inside yourself, which is very hard to leave behind, uh, no matter how hard you try. Hmm. I mean, there are people also like Guerra who have like changed their entire life because of travel. So it can be very important. Yeah. 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 Cool. Transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Now you asked about the biases and the phobias. Uh, if I just quickly mention uh, one or two things about that. I mean, uh, first and foremost, uh, the biases and uh, the fears and phobias uh, relate to the, the whole uh, you know, unfamiliarity of the place itself. You know, like uh, language could be unfamiliar, uh, the whole way they do things. Just give a simple example of the way they ask the public transport to stop when they need to get down you know, some of these things are different and that causes a lot of hesitations and uncomfortable feelings now uh, there are also many stereotypes that uh, you know no matter how open you think you are come into your mind that you kind of think that okay all chinese people are going to be like this or all western people are going to be like this so uh, those leads to certain biases and phobias as well and uh, for me, as a travel writer, not necessarily as a traveler, but uh, both as a travel writer and a traveler, the two things that I need to overcome is, uh, number one, my shyness. And uh, uh, what I've seen that uh, I've written a lot about this thing and I've, in my workshops, I've talked a lot about this thing that uh, many interesting things happen in front of your eyes when you're traveling. You meet many interesting characters. Uh, but you are often shy to engage with them. But all it takes is to say a hello and then an entire floodgate of very interesting story uh, of that person's life comes to you. And this person will share everything about his life or her life to you just if you say that, hi. Uh, so I understand it, but I would say 90% of that time when I travel, I'm too shy to ask about it. And if I'm not shy and I say that hello and make that first move, the kind of material I get, the kind of richness I get from that travel is uh, what leads to many of these stories I write about. Hmm. This also connects to the thing which you mentioned in the beginning that whom you travel with. So if you're traveling uh, solo, uh, are there chances of this happening more as opposed to because you travel with your wife and, and uh, so any any observations you had there? Uh, there are... Two aspects to this. I, I must say that there are certain cases when uh, the chances of spontaneous interactions, deep interactions are more. 
when you are traveling solo because you have that complete freedom of choice. You are not worried about the other person, uh, what is his or her thoughts about this next possible move that you are going to make. So you are kind of the king of your own hill. And I have traveled alone quite a fair bit and I have taken a bit more risk uh, in some of these cases than I would have perhaps if I was traveling with my wife. But having said that, I must also say that uh, traveling with a companion, and especially in my case, uh, I am married to a person from a different race, different country, different language. And uh, since it's a woman, sometimes I get this opportunity to interact a lot more with women uh, when I'm traveling. And uh, maybe if I was traveling solo, many of these women who we meet, who could be a simple villager, farmer, artisan, uh, they would probably not have opened up as much to me if I was traveling solo. But I get that uh, benefit if I'm traveling with my wife. They are more trusting or they are more uh, open to the other person. And also I get this benefit of language. Uh, between the two of us, we try to learn different languages. So <laughs> there are some places where she has better grasp of the language. So we kind of team up. Uh, to make more out of the places we go to. So I would say this, yes and no, if you have the right company, sometimes you may be able to uh, make more out of your travels. Mm -hmm. So how many languages do you speak? I mean, put together, both of you? <laughs> uh, okay, so, uh, you know, there are many Indian languages that I speak having grown up in India. So I would say about five Indian languages I can reasonably manage well. And then there's another five where I can find vegetarian food and I can find directions to certain places. So, so I would say about 10 in total for me and maybe about three for my wife. So about 13 languages we can, we can hang around with other people. Segway to another question, uh, which I wanted to ask you is that, so do you write about people or do you write about places? And, and then how... Or what is your definition about a place also? Because when you're writing, it's it's continuously, the lines are very blur, right? You can't really specifically talk about place or a person or a particular incident, but it it, it encapsulates a lot more things. So uh, is, it, is it the people or is it the geographical location or is it the culture even? So what, what is found within? So if you can tell us, uh, maybe by taking example of the other Shangri-La or any other uh, experience that you have um, and help us understand that what is the overall process of writing also. Right. Thanks Thanks for asking that. In, in my opinion, when I talk about a place, I would think of everything together. I would think of the geography, I would think of the people living there, the culture, the history, the uh, economics, uh, very importantly, the economic and the material aspect of their lives, uh, all those uh, together, I would consider as a place. Yeah. And uh, from a traveling experience per se, again, I'm going back to traveling because uh, travel writing has this close relationship with how you travel and, uh, you know, in the writing part itself. So uh, what I have witnessed is that uh, even if you go to the most um, stunning or most drastic dramatic location you know whether it's a volcanic pit or whether it's a, it's a, it's a very high mountain uh, it it does appear quite striking when you are there and uh, you might enjoy it thoroughly or be uh, scared by it thoroughly 
but that experience kind of fades away very fast. Uh, but in my case, it is the interactions with the people which have tended to linger on for much longer. And uh, today, if I look back, uh, some of the travels I did 10 years back, what I remember most are the people, the characters I met, the stories I encountered, not so much the visuals of that place or the geographic aspects of that place. But uh, as I was saying, these all these are closely interrelated. I'll just give you an, an example that uh, we have traveled a fair bit among the Caucasus countries, the Caucasus mountain countries like uh, Georgia, Abkhazia, Azerbaijan, Armenia. And uh, similarly, in the other Shangri-La, we have traveled around the Tibetan plateau. And uh, what happens is that many of these um, mountainous locations, you have these valleys in between these high mountain peaks. And over time, this geography has led to isolated settlements in some sense. Yeah? So isolated, I mean, there were still interactions between the different settlements, but there was some variation in culture, language, uh, religion in some cases, which happened in these small pockets, just because of the geographical nature of uh, valleys located between mountains. And that has led to a lot of conflicts. I mean, that one village will attack another village. Uh, some subcultures will come around in different valleys and they will think badly of the other subculture. And that has led to this, uh, you know, over the last 1,000, 2,000 years, these very different aspects of life and ways of thinking among these different settlements. So when we went around in Caucasus, uh, countries, we found that, you know, even like a place which as the, uh, as the crow flew could be only 10 kilometers away, but they had very different lifestyle, different language, different religion, and very different understanding of the other person who was just living 10, meter, 10 kilometers away. And uh, marriages were impossible between these two groups of people. Uh, they would always be suspicious of each other. And all this leads to, of course, uh, bad or sorrowful stories but also very fascinating stories. And uh, in a way, when I talk about place, as you mentioned, the interplay of all these things has led to where they are today and has led to these people that we come across when we're traveling through these parts. So Shivaji, I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned about, uh, uh, like you writing about people the most uh, and uh, at times the, the geographies as well. And uh, there's also, one more thing which you mentioned about whom you're traveling with. So I had gone to Pondicherry with my friend uh, and if we both were supposed to write our experience of just one morning, uh, it was quite different because uh, the, the shop where we went uh, to have breakfast, uh, the, the person there was actually going out and getting some vegetables and bread. Uh, so like making a sandwich was almost like a hour long process and we were from Bombay. So it felt completely different. And, and, um, I was very happy because he got me into the kitchen. I was helping him cut the vegetables and it was a completely positive experience for me. Right. So, uh, any, any insights there, which you can share that if you have to get into travel writing or, uh, is there anything which is like a good travel writer? is more empathetic towards the situation and thereby sharing the observations in a different perspectives. You know what I mean, right? Yeah. 
Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, within travel writing, there's a more serious form of travel writing, which nowadays uh, literary agents or publishers will ask you to rather classify as uh, creative nonfiction rather than calling travel writing. Uh, in which case, you know, such kind of deep introspection or empathy is quite highly valued. Uh, but, you know, in travel writing in ge general, it also includes things like what you read in the magazines, in the airline uh, brochures and uh, all these things where you are just describing or guidebooks, for instance, where you don't necessarily need to have a very good uh, connection with the people that you are meeting with. But when it comes to the more serious literary forms of travel writing, the ones you mentioned, uh, or for instance, uh, well-known travel writers such as Jan Morris, who recently died, I think yesterday, and then uh, Colin Tobron, uh, Paul Theroux, and so on. Uh, they always uh, try to build that connection and talk about these characters that you meet. So. In a sense, the essentials of uh, good travel writing is not very different from other writing in that sense that you need to have uh, very powerful characters that you come across, which show themselves and express themselves in the pages. You need to have great dialogues, which come in from these people. Uh, you need to have uh, the kind of sense of structure, pacing, organizing the whole work, uh, which is very relevant in other forms of writing as well. So uh, yes, in terms of uh, the experience part, the traveling part, the more you are willing to listen, the more you are able to hear. And that's where language also plays a big part because uh, if you can understand the person in their languages, it opens a lot more avenues for uh, interaction other than just talking to people from the travel industry. And uh, once you have done that traveling part, uh, you need to augment that with uh, very thorough research, especially research about the material aspects of life there, hist history, geography, and so on, uh, intercultural relationships there. And then comes the writing aspect per se, which involves things like structure, dialogue, sentence lens, paragraphing, and so on, which any other good writing would also entail. Mm -hmm. So I have two questions there. One is... Uh... You mentioned about doing research after the travel as well. Uh, it is because uh, these anecdotes are very powerful, but they are, someone has said, nah, anecdotes are not data. So uh, the, those, those, but still anecdotes are so powerful that you tend to believe in them more naturally than uh, like really counter checking. So how do you deal with that? And second is uh, when you are actually Actually, we'll, we'll just uh, first discuss this part and then I'll come back to the next question. Sure, sure. So uh, over the last few years, as I've written more and more, I've become less ambitious with my travel writing. So you know, when I visit a place, let's say I visit Indonesia or I visit Japan, I don't make that claim anymore that my book is about Japan or my book is about Indonesia. I think it's almost impossible to be so courageous to make such a claim that I've been able to experience and capture the whole of Japan or even the whole of Tokyo or even just uh, one neighborhood there, say Minato-ku, because uh, you can only meet as many people there, you can only understand as much nuances of life, even in a small neighborhood. So 
what I try to talk about in, or the way I try to describe my travel writing is that it's a combination of, inter uh, combination of interactions with some interesting people that I've met along my journey who are perhaps different from our day-to-day -day life and then try to set a context of uh, why they are behaving in a certain way or talking in a certain way or interacting with me in a certain way. And to explain that context is where I need to do that research into the history, the economics, the culture of that place so that the reader and myself as well can get a better or nuanced understanding of why this character is interacting the way uh, he or she is. Yeah. So I would say that you know I've become less ambitious. I try to position my travel writing as more of these snippets of interactions with fascinating characters who are different from us, and then set them in a context of a wider geopolitical, historical, geographical narrative. Mm -hmm. And and do you set out, or do you or any of the travel writers whom you look up to, um, or your contemporaries mm -hmm. as well? Um, do they set out with a idea or is it uh, the data which gives them hints of how to navigate the story? I mean, in documentary filmmaking, you, you don't really start off with a plot, right? You just you do your research and then right. something emerges out of it. So same happens with this as well? I would say there is a mix of that. Uh, in my own writing also, I have done a mix of that. So. Uh, for instance, I was doing a piece on the women boxers of Philippines. And uh, Philippines, if you know, they are very well known for their men boxers, like Manny Pacquiao has been a world champion for so many years. But they have these excellent women boxers as well, and they come from very uh, humble conditions. They grow up from very poor environments. So I did a story on that, and I was very focused, like, this is what I need to do. These are the people I need to interview and everything had been planned. So that was a kind of story writing where, uh, or travel writing where it was very focused and I knew what I had to do and I did that and I wrote about that. But in my longer pieces and which I believe many of the other travel writers would also be doing if they were to write more longer book format kind of pieces, uh, there would be certain milestones which will sort of serve as lighthouses along that journey. Uh, for instance, when I went to the Tibetan highlands in Sichuan, the other Shangri-La is the book that came out of it. I had these five or six things that I knew I would like to cover, like uh, the largest monastery and the highest slum in the world called Ladong, the oldest queendom uh, uh, that existed in this place called Danba, which still is famous for its courageous and beautiful women. So I knew that there'll be these five or six milestones and lighthouses that will guide me along the journey. But then I leave sufficient amount of uh, accidental or serendipitous encounters. So, and that leads to maybe half or uh, sometimes even more of the story or experience that comes out of their travel. So I would say writers try to do both things. There are some who are very focused and they follow that uh, scripted journey. And there are some who follow those milestones and then leave enough uh, ability to take these random or spontaneous interactions of the people. Sorry to but just go deeper. Then how do you pick these uh, areas? Because the when, when you said uh, women boxers in Philippines is quite 
not a natural thing to think about right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean sometimes it just it's a random brain wave that comes in <laughs> i don't i don't know how the brain works and you know, suddenly you get this idea that uh, okay i should follow the women boxers and sometimes uh, you just hear from other people and then you do some research and see okay no one has uh, written much about it and then you go to that place so one of the pieces that i did was for instance these uh, diamond miners in a part of indonesia and uh, they are still doing artisanal mining that uh, you know they flood a pit and then they dig by hand and they seed by hand and they get small pieces incidentally they found one of the biggest diamonds in the world in 1960 uh so uh, these are some things that you hear say as you travel around certain places and uh, then you do some research and see okay no one has really talked about it much in the world and then you try to go deeper so there's something which uh, you know just comes in and something which you uh, just find out through your research or find out through uh, talking to other people and then you see that okay this is a story i believe the world should know and i should do a, i should play a little part in bringing this out and that's how it came cool uh moving on to the second last question which is uh, my personal favorite also and my friend uh, uh like asked me to because he's he's quite traveled maharashtra folks quite extensively in his uh, teenage and uh, we are like a bunch of school friends who regularly travel um twice a year one like a big trek and then like one small trek nearby so uh, we have uh, we have been to uh nilkant uh, pass and uh, roopkund and places like that sometimes like somewhere in uttarakhand itself but um, like with advancement in modes of travel now it has made easier for people to travel even in unreachable places and since you have traveled so extensively you must have gained some insight as to what have we gained uh, with this uh, advancement or possibilities to reach such virgin uh, places and uh, what have we lost also so if like what being any yang of the, the <laughs> technology part <laughs> i think in general i'm pretty positive about this and uh, i think uh, we have gained a lot more uh, with uh, with these uh, cheaper modes of transport and better modes of transport and so on and uh, a classic example would be the uh, this uh, place in the in situan that we went to and that discovered in the other shangrila called the yading natural reserve and it's it's one of the places which claim to be the shangrila the fictional shangrila and it's a beautiful place it has these 3 6000 meter high mountains surrounding a valley and it's one of the most beautiful places that i have seen and it was impossible to go even uh, 40 years back uh, not just because there were no good roads but also there were monks who were bandits in these areas and even though they were buddhist monks if anyone from outside went there they would spend no time in just chopping off their heads so it was a very dangerous as well as a very tough place to go but in the last few years the infrastructure has been built and it's actually very good and we are able to go there and we are able to see this beauty of nature which is there as well as experience the people and their culture in that neighborhood but uh, of course uh, in some cases it might uh, go uh, haywire and there are obviously environmental repercussions of uh, 
transport and communications in terms of hills being denuded, uh, dams being built and so on, you know, pollution which comes from all this travel. So there's definitely a natural destruction uh, element to uh, or the consequence of all these things that we now take for granted. And uh, the other uh, negative aspect in some sense is that uh, it has led to some degree of homogenization of cultures in, in some sense that, um, you know, today if you go to uh, Japan or go to France, you will find so many people speaking Mandarin uh, because they are, their only job is to interact with Chinese tourists who are coming. And uh, a Chinese tourist who goes to uh, Paris, for instance, will not miss much of China because the two groups will ensure that uh, there is always a Chinese speaker attached to them. They're always dining at Chinese restaurants and uh, there is very limited scope of genuine interaction with the locals. And all this has been made possible because you have this uh, sizable demand of millions of Chinese coming every year to Paris and there is enough of dollars to create that separate very Chinese environment for these Chinese tourists. So uh, that's of course one of the pitfalls. And uh, but I'm not uh, I'm not a naysayer in that sense. I'm not one of those who would say that you know tribal people should continue to practice their age-old ways of life and they should remain poor and they should remain isolated from the rest of the world. I'm not one of those um, you know thing, people who exoticize poverty or isolation or a lack of scientific progress or achievements in these cultures. I think that even though you may lose some of that because of uh, you know other modern civilization, if I can call that coming in or technological advancement coming in. So even if you lose these things, culture is something which evolves, history is something which evolves continuously. And uh, I as a person have evolved so much in the last 40 years, I'm sure you would have evolved as well, that uh, none of these things will remain constant, uh, no matter how much you hard, how much hard you try to stop technological advancement reaching these places. So new others will evolve, new owns will evolve, and traveling will always remain interesting because there is always this curiosity among some of us and many of us to know about the other, and sometimes to know more about your own as well, which uh, creates this whole need for traveling, uh, like you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's um, brilliantly put and like gels with my last question. So with new media coming in, how and where do you see writing fitting in this uh, visual world? Because YouTube, Instagram, TV, there are like a lot more people doing, actually visiting these places, showing people how the place is in action. I mean, sometimes even live. So there is this big wave of uh, technology, which is uh, uh, democratized uh, travel also. I mean, who travels where and everything, right? So uh, how do you see writing as an art form uh, still? Sure. Like, where do you see it? So uh, I would speak more in terms of travel writing because uh, compared to other forms of writing, I believe travel writing has probably been affected the most because of new media. Yeah, And uh, I mentioned things like uh, Instagram, YouTube, TripAdvisor reviews and all uh, blogs, of course, which, has, uh, which could be counted as travel writing now. 
Uh, and what has happened is, uh, number one, uh, there's a lot of visual element to uh, travel writing now. So magazines or books in particular, publishers, they will not entertain a writer who is just who is not a good photographer or doesn't have good photos or doesn't have good videos. So many travel writers have been forced to take up photography or videography or if they are well-known enough, get someone to walk together with them in their journeys. Uh, what we have also seen is that uh, on the new media, uh, travel writing tend to be of a certain type. They're usually much shorter. Uh, typically a blog post is about 800 words, whereas a book could be 80,000 words and so on. So they are much shorter pieces and uh, there's this very strong visual aspect to uh, the way it is presented, photographs, videos, and so on. Uh, but it also has led to, like you said, democratization. Uh, you see a lot of women writing now, uh, you see young people, you see very niche segments uh, such as LGBTQ writing. Uh, you will see uh, people from the developing countries now taking up a big share. So, you know, in Indonesia, for example, Many couples, celebrity couples, or other couples have become celebrities because they have been writing about their travel online. So it has led to this uh, new wave and new popularity and explosion of content about travel. Now, if you ask me, uh, not all of their quality is uh, you know, something I would recommend because you have so many more people writing and uh, you don't have the checks and balances which used to come with traditional writing. But the other aspect is also the ethics of travel writing, you know, in uh, traditional travel writing and uh, more serious travel writing, there's a substantial amount of time and effort which goes in from the entire industry to ensure that certain ethics are adhered to, whether it's about representation, fact checks, uh, proper sourcing, uh, not benefiting from, say, poverty or uh, war-related destruction. So all those ethical elements, uh, they tend to get a short, uh, short end of the stick when it comes to online travel writing, because people just with so many people, they don't have the resources to do, say, fact checks, for instance. Yeah. So there has been that uh, backdrop as well. Now, going forward, I think uh, what will happen is some of the more uh, common or more um, or less serious forms of travel writing, let's say like top 10 places to spend your next vacation or uh, top 10 spas in Bali, these kind of articles will not be written by humans. I think uh, AI and such kind of machine learning pieces should be able to generate such travel writing, uh, such kind of travel writing very easily. You already see that happening in sports and finance journalism, for instance. I think that will happen in travel in journalism and travel writing as well. So the travel writer will have to really work very hard unless he or she or whatever gender has a very strong personal story situated around their travel. So this new travel writer for the, over the next 10 years will have to really find those niches and will have to really dig deep into the subjects that he or she is trying to cover or try to come up with very new angles of looking at the same story. So the kind of work and effort we need to put in will be much harder because of the advent of new media in the next few years. 
if machines are going to help us solve certain problems then it's quite ironic that we have to again put in more hard work <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. but yeah, i must yeah. also say that uh, the demand for the genre will never go down at least in the next few years because just as a statistics i think I, i'm guessing maybe only 3% of indians have passport yet you know so <laughs> and the same thing for china i think only 10% of chinese yet have a passport so imagine 90 to 97% of this big populations are yet to travel you know if the income levels go higher people will travel a lot more the consumption of travel literature will uh, will can only increase from where we are today so i see a bright future but uh, the effort required from the more serious travel writers is going to be really a lot more than what we are doing now you said about uh, ethics um, are there any other things in that i mean the question is mainly if you are to give you give like uh two tips uh, for upcoming travel writers especially uh what should they find uh at a fundamental level and then build on top of it so uh i think uh, of course there is the ethical part of it which is uh, what i mentioned earlier which is not benefiting from someone else's misery uh proper acknowledgement of sources not putting into harm certain sources like uh, when i was visiting around these uh, sino tibetan frontier which is quite a hot spot for tibetan uh, rebellion against han rule i could have put certain people into danger if i quoted their interviews with their names uh, and so on and then of course uh, there's the question of whether you paid for a story whether you uh whether you were paid for covering or giving coverage to certain places and so on so there are all these ethical aspects which uh, kind of form the base you know these are something that you have to uh, take care of even before you make a foray into travel writing now once you have taken care of that and which is what the publisher should also be responsible for uh, once you have taken care of that travel writing is essentially about uh, what i mentioned earlier is how you travel where you travel and uh, what you travel for and then the other part is more the skills of travel writing and there i would say uh, first of all when it comes to how you travel uh, two things i would say one i touched upon was the shyness overcoming shyness and to be very inquisitive and curious and be vocal about it and only then you can get the stories out of people i would also recommend putting some uh, investment into learning languages especially if you are visiting somewhere for longer than a month in learning the language of the place because otherwise you will be just interacting with travel guides who are usually the most nationalistic people they only paint a rosy picture of that place <laughs> and uh, other than that mm. of course the research and all you will put in and when it comes to writing part of it it comes with practice it comes with a lot of reading yourself reading some good travel works Uh, reading any kind of good uh, non-fiction work, and then keep working on it. Work on any good. Uh, uh, what are the typical good measures of non-fiction, which is about the structure of the work, what you omit, what you decide to keep, how you put the climax, how you begin. So these aspects of structure, uh, the language, and then having super dialogues because dialogues are what lead to spice. Uh, dialogues are the spice of any travel writing, so I think uh, that's the writing part of the thing that uh, a, a wannabe travel writer should go about. 
but all said and done, I think the most uh, serious blockage that uh, most travel writers or writers feel is that uh, they always make plans, but they don't write. So my only advice to anyone who is interested is forget everything, just pick up your pen or pick up your computer and start writing because unless you start, it will never happen. Yeah, yeah. Quite very, very inspiring and also insightful for me because uh, travel or writing both are sort of very, very new domains for me. I'm a designer, so it's it's it has been really um, wonderful understanding these uh, nuances which you shared. I think this is a good note to end this. Uh, thanks, uh, Shivaji, for giving your time. And it was uh, really wonderful talking to you. Thanks. Thanks, Kedar. Thanks for having me on Audio Gear. It was lovely talking to you. Yeah. So actually, uh-huh, actually, I forgot uh, before we conclude, uh, how like people to connect with you, uh, where do they buy the other Shangri-La book and other books? Yeah, they are all available on Amazon and uh, Flipkart and uh, any good bookshop uh, like Higginbotham's and all, they should be able Bali Sons, Higginbotham's. I think they're all available in uh, India and internationally online as well as in bookshops. Cool, cool. All the best uh, and uh, thanks a lot again uh, for being on the show. And uh, yeah, uh, happy journey for your next uh, travel after, yes, as and when that happens. after the COVID. <laughs> after the COVID, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yes, yes. Likewise, thanks, thanks for your time and consideration. And uh, yeah, keep in touch. Yes, thank you. That's it. And that's it from today's Gyan session. Catch us on iTunes, Savan, Stitcher, or any podcasting app you use. Do rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Stay tuned for more Gyan on audiogyan.com. Till then, bye!